Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Hey, it's the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Ungs. Thanks so much for joining me. Happy New Year, y'all. I hope you had fun celebrating whatever holidays you celebrate. It's the first Spark Parade episode of the year, and arguably the first one of the decade, unless you believe the decade starts next year, in which case this is the first episode of an average year. I'm starting 2020 as I intend to go on with unnecessary pedantry. Cool, right? So, let's get into the real shit, shall we? Coming up a bit later on, you'll hear my conversation with travel writer and YouTuber Jimmy M about his love for the movie Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, and the spooky young adult books of Christopher Pike. In summary... A lot of scary shit to look forward to. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about dancing. Not dancing performance, but the dancing you do when you go to bars and clubs as a youth. Over the holiday break, I saw a Scottish movie called Beats, which is set against the backdrop of the 90s dance music scene in the UK. It's a really lovely film and you should watch it whether you've been a club goer in your life or not, but it had special resonance for me as someone who spent a huge chunk of my teenage years and young adulthood in those spaces. I need to say something now that's going to put me at risk of being the gayest human on earth. Are you ready? You know the song Into the Groove by Madonna? It's already too gay, isn't it? Oof. All right. Anyway, in the pre-chorus to Into the Groove, there's a line where Madonna says, only when I'm dancing can I feel this free. When I was a youth, that really spoke to me. Excruciatingly gay, right? But going to warehouse parties and raves and clubs as a teenager, those were the times that I really felt like I was starting to exert some independence. I was going to these incredible spaces and listening to music I loved that no one else in my family really listened to, and the whole experience was uniquely mine. And I loved being able to dance with my friends until the wee hours of the morning, oftentimes leaving as the sun came up, drenched in sweat and exhausted, but so, so happy. And that feeling of elation only increased after I came out. Having those revelatory clubbing experiences in gay spaces really helped me to define who I am. A lot of queer people have two adolescences. The one you go through biologically when you go through puberty, and a later psychological adolescence after you come out. Queer people in the closet don't have the average experience of coming to terms with their gender or sexual identity. They're, at least in part, performing a cis-heteronormative adolescence as a survival technique. 
I came out in my early 20s and I had to learn how to navigate the world as a gay person. Coming out was the first step, but I devoted a lot of mental energy in the years afterwards towards truly accepting and learning to love who I am. And clubbing in gay and gay-friendly spaces played a huge part in that transition. Being able to go out to the same kinds of spaces where I'd always had fun with my friends and heard the music that I loved while being surrounded by other queer people was the most free I'd ever felt in my life. That second adolescence was messy and fun and full of joy joy and heartbreak, and it all centered around the enormous amount of late-night revelry available in London's queer spaces. And now, when I hear the music I listen to during those years, it always makes my heart beat a little bit faster, because those songs are the soundtrack to me settling into myself. There, that whole thing was utterly, utterly gay. I hope you enjoyed that, because proceedings are not gonna get any less gay from now on, whether you like it or not. So, without further ado, let's skip along to my chat with Jimmy M about Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and Christopher Pike. So, uh huh. Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Yeah. So, do you remember seeing it for the first time? I do. Yes, I do. I was uh, probably in, I was in third grade. So, does that make me like 10, 9 or 10? And I, my brothers and I were obsessed with horror movies. And I remember my dad taking us to see it in the theater. I, th- this is, I think 1988, right? It came out when I, so yeah, when I was 10. And we were obsessed. I just became obsessed with the movie. Um, I think because, you know, when you're young in your formative years, you are, movies are so, they make such an impression on you. And, I remember thinking that this movie was more, I know this might sound weird. It might be a stretch, but it felt like a Disney film, right? Mm -hmm. Except, you know, everyone dies, but I, everything about like the characters, like you really identified with the characters. They were people who were bonding to form these friendships. Um, there is a woman helping them to survive and stay alive and to find their true, you know, who they are. Did you ever see the movie? Yeah. yeah, yeah, Okay. Yeah. 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 And so that was the biggest takeaway for me is that it was more about like friendship and community and how, you know, you should support one one another. And, uh, cause you know how they all found their like powers and their dreams. Right. 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 Yeah. And they had to be who they are. They had to believe in themselves to like become who they were and. And to fight evil, I don't know. I it, it always resonated with me. It was kind of like the like a like a dead poet society for for horror films, right? Yeah, yeah and in a weird way, yeah. That whole idea of they, you know, they all these people getting into this dream world together, and all of them mm-hmm. being able to say, "In my dreams, I'm a wizard." In my dreams, yeah, I know. like yeah, uh, being able to will themselves into this ideal version of themselves, or a you know fantasy version of themselves. Yeah, um, that all of that felt like adventure books that kids would read. I mean, I, I think that kind of ties into the mm-hmm. Christopher like, Pike yeah. stuff. That it's yes. like this. Mm-hmm supernatural fantasy stuff. And even mm-hmm. though it's a horror movie and, you know, terrible things happen, it's not like the Goonies or something. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I definitely felt that too. And the characters were very fleshed out. They were very specific. You know, one was like the badass and one was like the nerd and one was, and it wasn't very, you know, I feel like even in the original, they were all just like teens. They they didn't have like these fully fleshed out characters. And I don't know. I, I've, I've always been obsessed, but um, I think that also like the 
the special effects were so amazing. They were so brilliant. And I just don't remember seeing a lot of movies at the time that were that took it to that level. Yeah. With the little when he was like the puppet. Yeah. The, that um, that was amazing. Yeah. And that part, I, yeah. I watched it again last night. That part in particular, there's uh, for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, there's it's kind of disgusting where Freddie like pulls this guy's, I don't know, tendons out of his arms and legs and mm-hmm. walks him down the hallway like a puppet um, or a marionette. And that part in particular really holds up and is yeah. fucking disgusting. Yeah. Some of the other effects are like, oh, yeah, this is definitely from the 80s. There's like yeah. the there's a skeleton that comes to life and it's this real claymation. Like you can see there's a split between the screen in the back where uh, what they the actors have filmed and they're mm-hmm. animating in front of a screen. Um, so some of that stuff, it's like obviously, you know, special effects date and that's always going to happen. Um, but for the time, I remember being so excited by it and just thinking it was oh, so amazing. Oh, good, good, yeah. good. Yeah, I, I just remembered, I I remember I was so obsessed with Joey, the, the mute, the yeah. guy who couldn't talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, that my, I remember my, I had everyone, I changed my name. In third grade, <laughs> I had everyone in my class call me Joey oh, instead God. of Jimmy. And even my teacher did. And so for a while, but then it was, just, it didn't, it never caught on. But I, I remember years later just going through old papers and stuff. And it was like Joey M instead of Jimmy. It was, I mean, that's how much I was obsessed with this movie. Like I was, uh, and, and Joey, cause he was super hot. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And when you're, yeah. That whole scene with him and the nurse. Was oh like, yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, this yeah. It's giving me funny feelings. Yeah. Um, I and, remember my dad was covering our eyes during that scene too. I mean, yeah. it's such a, I don't know. Maybe there was just, maybe there's a lot of different elements that make it stand out for me. Like seeing it with my dad and like my brothers and I don't know, whatever. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely felt like it's weird that there isn't out of that group of kids any uh-huh. particular like lead protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, even Patricia Arquette, who's supposed to be this you know kind of focal point, who's the person who can pull them into dreams or whatever. It's not like she is the sole focus. It's an ensemble um, situation. And yeah. I feel like Joey was the one who was like the closest they had to the heartthrob. Mm-hmm. But even that is like yeah. he's not given any more screen time than any of the rest of them. Yeah, but he did have a powerful scene at the end where he found his voice, literally mm, found his mm-hmm. voice, and I thought that was such a beautiful moment. And yeah. it was just, I think that's what made me like fall in love with him. I was like, oh my God, he like persevered and he he had a breakthrough. And yeah. I don't know, it was just, I mean, it was those like little moments can affect you when you're young. And I think it was... In a way, he was. They were all heroes. I mean, they were all like superheroes, right? They mm-hmm. all had like a certain look. I still remember their looks. I still remember their powers. I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but then, unfortunately, they were like killed off. Yes. Yeah. In yeah. part four, I was like, why would you do that? They were, yeah, yeah. Also, like I really loved horror movies when I was a kid, and I'd seen okay. the first one mm-hmm. and was really excited by that. And then the second one was like this weird. There's a lot of discussion about this. There's actually a documentary coming out soon about the kind of gay themes of the second one. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was loosely related to the first one, but didn't have a a continuation of any of the characters from the first one. And I also remember being so excited that Nancy from the first one was back in the third one. And it was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. And And it was it was I'm sorry. It was the one it was the first one where Freddie was kind of like funny, but not cheesy. He didn't have like the cheesy lines, but he was still he wasn't like. 
incredibly like I like the first one he was super scary right mm-hmm. like he was so creepy but the third one is like okay I'm not super scared of him but I want to see where this goes he yeah. was still scary but not like but not definitely as intense. putting in a lot of humor and I think that was the beginning that set the tone for how the series carried on mm-hmm. um that it was like disgusting scary things happening but also these moments of levity I mean having Dick Cavett turn into Freddy Krueger and kill Zsa Zsa Gabor oh yeah <laughs> that, I were, yeah um, that was amazing gosh yeah. all these I actually you know there was I in maybe just because I haven't seen it in a couple of years now but I used to know the entire movie by heart. I oh could God. recite the entire movie just like to friends. Yeah. Just like entire scenes. Verbatim. Every I mean, that's how many times I've seen it. I mean, I could I could probably do it now, but it would take like I'm not gonna do that. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier Patricia Arquette. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, a lot of people don't know that she was in that movie, and then Lawrence Fishburne right. was in it. And then who and then Heather Langenkamp, yeah. they brought her back. But you know, it's uh the Nightmare on Elm Street series is kind of a, a breeding ground for um international superstardom, you know, Johnny Depp being the first one, then Yeah. Um all yeah. That, so I don't remember I I feel Roseanne was in one of them. <laughs> yeah, and Tom Arnold. Like, like, yeah. Yeah. In part six or something or seven or yeah. I don't I can't remember who else. But Johnny Depp, he did come back for a cameo hmm. in part six too or something. But I remember going through the IMDBs for the other actors a few years ago just to see what else they may have done. But um there was Jennifer who was killed by Freddie in the TV. She was the one mm-hmm. who wanted to be an mm-hmm. actress. She was in another horror movie I'd seen maybe a few years after. And I was like, oh, my God, she's this is it. Because it was like a small part. So mm-hmm. I'm like, she's not going to she's not going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and then Taryn was in that movie Bad Dreams. Did you ever see that? She was like the star. She was like the star character. That was another horror movie that came out a few years after. So she did not. That movie did not do well, but I remember seeing that when I was young too. There was one scary scene in it, but nothing else. She was a good like scream queen. Like I liked her scream. Patricia Arquette, I still remember her screams too, and they're really good. <laughs> I did see that movie. I am. Oh, you did. I am googling it right now. But yes, I totally remember that. Um, yeah, that was Taryn. But the others never really got any roles. Yeah, that's funny, and it's also funny that like Lawrence Fishburne has kind of a thankless uh, role in Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and he ended up being one of the most famous people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even he didn't in have it, a he... lot of screen time either. It was just, no. just at the hot, maybe like 10 minutes total. But that's so funny to think about. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I, and I think the humor, uh, going back to that whole element of it that that was something that really attracted a lot of people uh-huh. our age who probably were too little to really be watching horror movies but did because yeah. it was like this it transformed this really scary horrific boogeyman into something that was like he he wasn't an anti-hero but you know he they freddy Krueger started popping up in like commercials and yeah. um in other elements of pop culture where it was like more than in a way that something you know the the leads in other horror franchises like michael myers or um Mm -hmm. jason from friday the 13th Mm -hmm. those are just always silent scary 
murderers who there aren't those moments of levity, or at least not intentionally. Some of the Friday the 13th movies ended up being kind of unintentionally funny. But yeah, Freddy yeah. Krueger was like this evolved into this different thing that was like equal parts horror and comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was when I'm, it, I'm having all these memories flood back, but I do remember having what a Freddy Krueger love and my brother having like this sweater. I feel like it was easy to capitalize on him because, you know, kids started loving him because he was kind of funny and dorky. And he, like you said, like, not really a hero, but kind of like an anti-hero. Someone that you, I don't know. We, everyone in my neighborhood was obsessed with him. But I wonder if him being funny. I wonder. I was reading a story. I was. I well, actually, no. It was on YouTube. I was watching all these YouTube clips on um, videos on Nightmare on Elm Street a few weeks ago, and I wonder if it's one of the videos was saying that like by the he got so cheesy. And campy because that's what the viewers wanted. That's they mm. didn't take him seriously anymore mm-hmm. after the you know the second one. It was it really impacted the way that things were going. But I wonder if like that was actually intended. I wonder if Wes Craven and was it Robert Shea? It was Robert Shea who was a producer or whatever had event had wanted him to be this character that just wasn't the same scary burned up killer from one but they were hoping to take it to friday the 13th level with all these other episodes fall or not episodes but movies following it sequels following it but trying to remain different because there were so many of these killers coming out at that time right it was like yeah michael like you said michael myers and um angela from sleepaway camp mm-hmm. they made her funny yeah and then you can't make Jason funny. Yeah, I think that maybe it was like a way for them to capitalize on that moment saying like, oh, we can actually turn this into a thing and make a shit ton of money from it. Right. And get making the audience as broad as possible. Yeah. And the yeah. movie poster. Do you remember the movie poster? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. It was so good. Yeah, so amazing. Yeah. I think I had that. There was a video store around the corner from my house called Popcorn Video. And they okay. used to have poster sales. And I would buy... Yeah. Sometimes I think they would even give away posters and my friends and I would go there and like fight over the best ones. And I think I had that poster. I definitely had Ferris Bueller's Day Off and I thought that was the coolest. Okay. Okay. Um, But yeah, with the the humor and stuff, I think the second Nightmare on Elm Street had been so unsuccessful and almost stopped the franchise. Like the new line weren't sure that they wanted to carry on making more films because the second one had done so poorly. And then it was like Wes Craven wasn't involved in the second one. And he came back with all these ideas. He had like the Mm. meta idea of, you know, uh, the actors in the movie being like attacked by Freddy, which happened in a later movie. And that didn't get used for the third one. Mm -hmm. Um, But this idea of, you know, expanding, uh, the possibilities of like what Freddy does when he's in these dreams and, and all that kind of stuff, I think led to opportunities for humor. And a lot of the reviews acknowledged that it was like some of the humor was intentional and some of it was not. And sometimes people were yeah. laughing at things that were supposed to be serious, but it all worked and it, it you know, audiences yeah. responded to it either uh-huh. way. And I think the fact that people were clearly responding to the humor made them amp it up in mm. later episodes. And sometimes that worked and sometimes it was a little too over the top, but um, yeah, it's a, a pretty clear line drawn between experimenting with these little 
elements of humor and then having it explode in, um, in the yeah. rest of the series. Yeah, they played it up. Well, I need to see it. I mean, like I said, it's been years since I've seen it, but I need to see it again. Yeah. I, I remember, yeah, I, I think that just talking about it now is making me think of like how it has influenced me in other ways. And I remember back when I was young again, I haven't thought about this in a long time. I remember writing a sequel to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. So I wrote Part 4 as, you know, as 10 years old. Because, you know, I've always written short stories since I was a kid. But I remember that was the first short story that I wrote was a Part 4. So what happened to, like, Kincaid and Joey? I would love to see outtakes of the movie or just something. That's, I mean, that's how obsessed. I, I, I doubt that they, they probably, I mean, I'm sure they exist, right? But there's nothing online or... No. Or bloopers, or, or yeah, maybe, maybe there are. Maybe there have yeah. been documentaries made about the whole series. Yeah, something to explore. Shall we have a little chat about uh, Christopher Pike? Oh yeah, yes, yes. Let's do it. <laughs> um. So, how I, did you know I liked Christopher Pike? No, I'm joking. Do you remember if somebody? introduced you to them did you have them in like the school library they were in all over my school library oh good yeah Yeah, they were they were hot back then i no i remember going to the store with my dad and seeing the cover of final friends book one and i asked him to buy it for me because i love the color i love murder mysteries and you know that and he bought it and i i think that's when i got hooked and then i I read part two and then part three and then all the, you know, his first books like slumber party and give me a kiss. And I, I was honest like I binged read Christopher Pike and remember this is, I'm in maybe I'm probably seven or eight years old going. I mean, I, I read a lot when I was a kid and I remember catching up with all the books that I hadn't read. And then he would come out with a new book every like two to three months. I mean, they were, they were very frequent. And I remember reading every book that came out within a day. And then I stopped doing that because I wanted to enjoy it more. Mm-hmm. And so when a new book came out, I would take two days to read it. I would stop. For, I mean, but that's how much I love the book. I mean, they were, I know it was so cliche, but page turners. Mm-hmm. But I think that I was, I was so obsessed with like murder mysteries back then, like whodunits. And I never really, I remember never really guessing who the killer was because I would, like to see how he would surprise the reader rather than trying to figure out who like the killer was or, or whatever. But I, I think he, I did, he did, he took a lot of risks. I think he wrote about a lot of crazy weird shit too. It wasn't always just like five friends and something bad happened and who's the one who killed them all or cause there were like dinosaurs that like human dinosaurs and what, like they were, I don't some weird stuff. Gosh, I remember him making me want to be a writer. Mm. And I would, every book that I read, and this is, remember, this is pre-internet. You can't research these people. I would always look at his photo and remember his bio was that it was kind of vague. Like, oh, he enjoys reading and writing and playing with his nieces and nephews. Mm. I'm like, oh, he's gay. (laughs) I remember thinking that Mm. and trying to find proof that he was a gay person in his stories and i sometimes did because he would often write about how hot one of the guy characters was rather than like the girl the girl was just like a blonde pretty whatever Mm -hmm. um and i think that really helped me 
kind of explore that too. Just like, is this guy on my team? Am I on my team? You know, I'm so young, but it's like, it's just something that, that I thought about. And when you're that young, you don't know what gay is, but I knew that he wasn't like into girls because you don't play, you know, you have kids or you're like, oh, your, your bio would say like lives with his wife and, you know, has two kids or whatever. But I don't, I mean, I, I always love the covers. I don't Mm -hmm. know why. I mean, that's very, like, I guess book covers are very important at a young age and he actually inspired me to write. I wrote a a young adult novel recently. It took me six Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. Isn't that crazy? Like six years. (laughs) And I, um, I just sent it to the, to the agent like three months ago. Hmm. I mean, it's nothing like a Christopher Ike book. Yeah. It's more like Game of Thrones because there's multiple oh, characters, wow. not in terms of content, but in terms of like the structure, like there's so many storylines that just kind of like weave into, anyway, I'm, I won't get into that, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, Christopher and Christopher Pike had a huge impact on my life. And I even like when I was graduating high school because you know you don't read those books when you're graduating when you're you know 17 or 18 right because right. that's for a younger audience he actually evolved to um writing adult books so i started reading i think the first one was called sadie i mean it was stupid it was really bad mm-hmm. but yeah no i was really supportive of him and I, and I was obsessed with him and i loved his stories i thought he was a really smart writer i mean i think there's there's so much to kind of so much to unpack about like the the appeal that it's all of those things that you were saying but it's like this kind of maybe coded queerness or implied queerness that um would Mm -hmm. appeal to young queer people but also like this idea that you know it was uh the agent who uh was responsible for getting the babysitters club uh published was the same person who published his books or who oh, got really? his okay. published. So there's all this, the, a, a connection between the two. They're both, you know, with Scholastic. Yeah. Um, and the Babysitter's Club was definitely targeted at girls. And Christopher Pike's books felt like a version of the Babysitter's Club or, a, you know, a competitor to the Babysitter's Club that was like, not just targeted at girls. It was something that boys could read too. Okay. And I mean, boys could read the Babysitter's Club, but it was especially at that time considered mm-hmm. to be something that's like, if you were reading the Babysitter's Club, you were going to get teased, if not bullied and yada, yada. Um, but Christopher Pike books, it was like having all those elements of the kind of like soapy melodrama of other young adult books at that time, mm-hmm. but with these kind of really sinister elements, really heavy shit in it. Yeah. Um, and he's also said that he found it easier to write the more fantastic, spooky, supernatural stuff and to get these people into really not unbelievable situations, but very extreme situations because they're kids. Mm-hmm. And it's like kids will do fucking anything. And if they're making dumb decisions or things that don't make sense, it's because they're kids and kids just like yeah. do those things. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it, and also having that same kind of uh, pulp novel churning them out, like having you know new ones constantly coming, that it was something that kids could rely on. And yeah. um, with other book series, you know, mm-hmm. if you're reading like adult books where they're much longer and will only you'll, you'll get a book from an author like once every few years. Yeah, there's so yeah. much more waiting time. And with this, it was like you could always rely on new ones coming out. Um, you know, and with with uh, reasonable frequency. So yeah, uh, it's funny. I actually what I I went back to read a few of his books. 
I would say like a year ago, I was just, I happened to be on Amazon and somehow he, sh- I was like, oh shit, that's so funny. I'm going to, I'll get this, this, and this, and I'll just reread them. And it's not the same thing when you read them. When you're, it's not like Harry Potter, the words for kids and adults. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was rough. Yeah. <laughs> I was, you know, it was, it's definitely intended for like really young readers, but however, it was very interesting and it was amusing to read the dialogue because these are, he wrote these in the eighties. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's all like very eighties writing. I mean, it's fun to go back to like nostalgically, but I'm not into them anymore. This is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that that's always going to be, or mostly going to be the case when it's stuff that's targeted at children or young people. Mm-hmm. There are definitely books that I read when I was a kid that it's written in this like, 50 point font there's like three words on each page and yeah. i remember thinking like i'm really reading important literature and like i'm you know these books are really meaningful and i'm always going to you know have them as a a reference point in my life as like important books that i've read mm-hmm. and you know going back and even reading the first page and it's just like oh my god this is trash um but it, it when you're a kid it feels like having this thing that's your own mm-hmm. also knowing that your parents probably aren't reading them um, yeah. and it's, those books are like the first time in a, a person's life where you get to have something that you're reading that's just for you and, mm-hmm. and your friends. And, you know, you, it's, it's not like a secret, but it feels kind of like this special world that's only, only for you, yeah. um, which is, is pretty amazing. I think you, and I think you have to really, I remember when I was, a, when I was a kid, my, my mom would take my brothers and me to the mall, Cumberland Mall. This is back in Georgia. And she would give us each $5 and drop us off in the game room, mm-hmm. like arcade games. And she would just go shop for like an hour and then come back to pick us up. And I remember the older that I was getting, the less interested I was in games. And I would just take that $5 and I would go to the bookstore, like down the hall and get the newest Christopher Pike book or whatever. And I would read it. And I think that... That says something about his right. I mean, there was no other right. You know, I I read R.L. Stein and Lois Duncan, and sure they were fine, but I mean, there was just something about Christopher Pike that I was just so obsessed with. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm still waiting for that. I, they've never adapted a Christopher Pike book into a movie or a show, or I have th- they? Think there's one starring Tatiana Ali. I am getting my fact checkers to just. Find that out for you right now. I'm going to Google if he's gay or not. This interview that I read, he talks about having a girlfriend. In, but that was when he was very young. So who knows? I had girlfriends too. Yeah. No, he's... look. I mean, every in his author photos, well, A, he lived in San Francisco, and then he wore a cardigan in every... in the, in the, in the fob. Maybe I'm mistaken. I think he's saying... Okay, so I think he's saying... There was a movie of the week with Tatiana Ali in it, and that coincided with him putting characters of color in his books, which he very rarely did. Oh. And he experimented with having non-white oh. characters and then was like, you know what? I'm good. Only white people. <laughs> and he talks about it like it wasn't this conscious decision decision where he was like, only I only want white characters in my book, but that he just never It just didn't um, work. And that he he was saying there he doesn't have the excuse of saying that people wouldn't respond to white characters or non-white characters at mm-hmm. the time. He just didn't do it. And he regrets having not uh, okay. 
tried to incorporate more characters. Oh, that's good. Okay. Because, yeah, all his characters were white. Yeah. Well, most of them. There was very rarely... There were, I think there was like a Chinese character once, but yeah. And there's uh, a Viet- I'm sorry, Vietnamese. That was the cop in um, Chain Letter Two, <laughs> and one black character at some stage as well. But but um, not remember me. She was white. No. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because um, I remember the book cover of mm, her like dead. <laughs> yeah. Blood coming out. No. I gotta read. Inter- I haven't even. I've never read an interview with him. I guess yeah. it just never occurred to me that. Okay, maybe I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could only really find uh, a couple. So um, he's, yeah, he's serious and aloof. Same with the uh, the woman who wrote Babysitter's Club. It's like, you know. I thought Babysitter's Club, like Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys, was written by many different writers. Babysitter's Club was the first, like, 30 were oh. all written by the same person, and then they were kind of written by okay. the scholastic corporate machine. Yeah. Um, so, crap. Yeah. Um, that's so funny. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you have any uh, final thoughts on uh, either of these subjects? No, I, you know, I've, I, yeah, I think I've, I feel bad for coming in here without having looked at, having watched the movie recently. Because <laughs> no, it's no, hard no. to like remember things or have like, you know, you brought up some really good points. I was like, oh shit, how do I? And the same thing with the Christopher, I haven't read his books in a while. I mean, I did last year i think but yeah but i mean you know it's in in this show it is my responsibility to do the research and kind of oh okay uh, get get that stuff all organized great you it's about your memories your experience of it and yeah so that's what you bring to it and And it brought in all these memories started flooding back and that's 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 very so thank you yes you're you're very welcome i am like Patricia Arquette in Night Run Elm Street 3, mm-hmm. helping to uh, drag you into a dream about all of the things that you've uh, been influenced by. Wow. That Are was a stretch. Any... That was a No, that was, no, a no labored, that was good. A that was good. Uh, simile. Uh, wonderful. That all... Uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with uh, how this has turned out. Um, you have some projects... You're, you're working on and uh, how can people find out about them? Oh, uh, yeah. I run travelbinger.com and that is, that's my website. It's a travel website on exclusive like travel tips and inspiration and destination features. Um, so, yeah. So, that's that and the YouTube. Mm-hmm. I started the YouTube channel and that's also just like tips on you know i think like some that i recently did was like how to real how to realistically get an upgrade to first class um the one thing that you shouldn't use in hotel room just things that a lot of people don't really think about like i try to offer tips and advice that isn't cliche like um i'm not going to give you any examples because you're going to have to go see the video (laughs) um that is a a um, very tantalizing teaser, I think, and those uh, like already the tips uh, that you're suggesting from the YouTube channel sound. Yeah, good. you. I mean, there. I just did the tip. I wrote a story today on um, why you should share a bed when you're traveling with a friend, like in a hotel, mm. and because not a lot of people know this, but all the best suites 
you can be upgraded to, they only have one bed. Mm-hmm. Like the only people that get upgraded that actually book those rooms are like business travelers and honeymooners or, or couples, right? So if you want like a huge room, if you're traveling with a friend, you're not going to get it if you ask for two beds. They don't exist in like suites. Yeah. See, that's a hack that nobody hot knows tips. about. That nobody yes. knows about that. I'm yeah. like, you will get an upgrade. And it's, anyway, whatever. Yeah. Um, Great. Uh, yeah, everybody go and check out uh, yeah. the YouTube channel check and the website. Check it out. Travel binger, one word, like binging on something. All right. Uh, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Yeah. Thanks um, for having me, Adam. Bye-bye. That was an objectively good time, right? Thanks again to Jimmy. Follow his YouTube channel and check out his website. Okay, recommendations. Firstly, this is me being pretty far behind the curve, but I finally got caught up with What We Do in the Shadows, the TV show that is, not the film, and it is fucking hilarious. I don't know what took me so long. Um, As I mentioned, it is based on a film of the same name, and it's about a group of vampires who are living together as housemates on Staten Island. It's created by Taika Waititi, who has made some other brilliant stuff like Hunt for the Wilder People and that last Thor movie. The cast is incredible. It's a perfect antidote to your back-to-work January blues. And in my year-end musical roundup, I've been listening to the latest Kindness album, Something Like a War, basically nonstop. It is extremely soothing and will also fight your seasonal affective disorder very well. Lots of incredible guests on it too, like Jasmine Sullivan and Robin, so check that out. And... I think that's it for this week. As always, please follow me on social media at Spark Parade and give me a little New Year review and five-star rating while you're at it too. You can still donate to my GoFundMe if you want to, even though it's a new year, because, hey, giving isn't just for the holidays. It's for life or something. Anyway, be good this week. Have lots of fun. Until next time, bye. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.